Welcome to the Sick to Death podcast, a history of medicine in 10 objects, which are on display at our brand new medical museum in the heart of historic Chester. Sick to Death is supported by the Wellcome Trust. Now, buckle yourselves in. This is going to be a gory ride. In this episode, we're travelling back in time to the early modern period. For the purposes of simplicity, we're going to take the period as beginning at around 1500 and ending during the late 18th century. During this time, in Europe, we see the splintering of the Christian Church into Catholicism and different branches of Protestantism. In Britain specifically, we see the rise of the Tudor and Stuart dynasties, the eruption of civil war and the uniting of Scotland with England and Wales. It is a world becoming more globalised with contacts between the Afro-Eurasian continents and the Americas, resulting, as we know, in genocide, oppression, slavery and colonisation. Within this time, medically speaking, a number of significant thinkers come to the fore, people who refute key tenets of Galanic and classical medicine. We also see growing rates of literacy, an explosion of literature with the arrival of the printing press, scientific developments such as the microscope, and novel injuries to the human body when gunpowder was taken onto the battlefield. Today we'll explore the notable thinkers and the social history of medicine in Britain and Europe. But it would be remiss to simply view the history of medicine during this time through a European lens, so we'll also take the Dahomey Kingdom in West Africa as a case study. First, let's find out what our sick-to-death object is today. Dean Patton, we're returning to you for today's surprise object to open the episode. Um, What do you have for us today? We have a full-size replica of a flayed man hanging from the rafters of the ceiling now flayed literally means he's had all his skin peeled back or much much of his skin peeled back pretty gruesome but pretty relevant to the history of medicine and how is that relevant could you could you explain a bit more absolutely so it's inspired by the drawings of andreas vesalius who's a famous physician who was one of the first to start observing the body in the renaissance period drawing pictures of the body in various stages of decomposition and and able to kind of understand how the body works by actually looking at it which was very rare for the time it was frowned upon due to religious reasons Vesalius used to go to the sides of the roads where there were hanged men and condemned criminals and and they were left to die outside the walls of cities and he would take his opportunity to draw these uh, when he was able to get hold of them. So it was a bit of a dangerous time, I suppose, because uh, it was that kind of science versus church. But the drawings that he made uh, were so important that they were still in medical textbooks hundreds and hundreds of years later. So we have a a full-size replica of one of his drawings for people to uh, either look at and enjoy maybe not the right word to use but to certainly (laughs) (laughs) or maybe to to run away from it's pretty gruesome looking but uh, it's inspired by one of the most important set of medical drawings in history. As Dean touched upon the church had always been traditionally opposed to human dissection because it believed that once a person died their body was sacred and needed to remain in one piece for the individual to meet their maker. That said, the arrival of the Black Death and the continual threat of plague meant that dissections of criminals were becoming more and more common. By the time a young student named André Vesalius was sitting his medical degree at Padua University, dissection had become more common, especially in Italy. 
That's Julie Mathias, medical historian at the Old Operating Theatre. So Vesalius was born in Brussels in 1514. Um, he actually began his studies at the Paris Faculty of Medicine and then on to Padua University where he took his medical degree in 1537 and instantly became made a professor. Six years later, he would publish his masterpiece, which gave a completely new insight into the human anatomy. The book title translates as On the Fabric, on Structure of the Human Body, is one of the most detailed and exquisitely illustrated pieces of text on the mechanisms of, of the human form. So overall, the book challenges Galen's ideas on how our insides are made up. And, and this is because ancient doctors mainly dissected animals, which of course, in many ways, um, you know, are created completely different to us humans. So what Vesalius does is he actually sets about really interrogating Galen's version, and he discovers over 300 mistakes. So he makes over 300 corrections, um, which proves such things as the jaw, the human jaw is actually in one part, not two, or uh, the human breastbone um, is actually um, in, in three parts, um, not seven. Vesalius's work is quick to be given authority and leads um, others uh, continually um, into developing um, um, his technique. So um, I think that um, while um, he absolutely deserves a great recognition for for the discoveries that he made, um, but more than anything else, um, I think that he should regard, be regarded as one of the first pioneers to create a new atmosphere of inquiry for others in the profession um, to, to to follow, and uh, you know he would he would write extensively how that it was vital for any anatomy professor to carry out the dissections themselves to actually make sure they they are doing the work, they are doing the investigations, so they can pick up errors from the previous and so forth. And really, by the close of the 16th century, Vesalian anatomy had become the golden method for anatomical investigations. It's during the 16th century that we find another key medical figure, that of Ambrose Parry. Parry's story is inextricably linked to the development of artillery and firearm-driven warfare. Discovered in China in the 9th century, gunpowder is believed to have entered the theatre of war in Asia during the 10th century. By the 15th and 16th centuries, it was also widely being used in Europe. This resulted in a new kind of injury. The bullet wound. Ambrose Parry was one of the most acclaimed surgeons of this period. He was born in France in 1510 and had trained and worked at a busy hospital in Paris, Le, Le Hotel de. Um, but like many surgeons at this time, Parry gained most of his experience through warfare. Um, because as an army or, or naval surgeon, you could always guarantee that there would be a constant supply of men that needed um, surgical attention. So, your, you know, your practice was always being kind of, you know, needed. Um, his main innovation lay in his rejection of the standard treatment of gunshot wounds. So, traditionally, surgeons had used cautery irons to close off and open abrasion or stop blood loss. Uh, now, this involved placing a metal rod 
or rods generally into boiling oil until it reached a dull red glow then the surgeon would put the irons directly onto the affected area until the skin became scorched i mean horrendous just to imagine but it was believed at the time that the uh, the extreme heat would penetrate the womb and um, and help to destroy the embedded poisons caused by the gunpowder um, itself and this method was certainly practiced um, by Parry until one night when he was attending to some uh, badly injured soldiers, he realised he had actually run out of oil and there was no way of getting you know, an emergency supply brought in uh, until later, next day or so, so forth. So rather than do nothing, he quickly reacted by creating an alternative treatment by mixing together egg whites, rose oil and turpentine into a balm or kind of ointment, Parry applied this compound to the men's wounds. He later actually described how badly he had slept that night, plagued by thoughts that he would awake to find all the men dead whose wounds he had failed to burn. But to his great surprise, he discovered that those he had actually treated with the barman complained less pain, showed no signs of inflammation or swelling, and had in fact passed the night quite peacefully, as opposed to the men that had been treated by cauterization, who had high fevers and severe um, inflammation around their wounds. So after this, he made a pledge to never again afflict the trauma of burning people who had suffered um, gunshot wounds. Parry's um, second innovation was the use of ligatures rather than cauterization when performing an amputation. Um, other surgeons had previously um, used a form of thread to tie off the veins and arteries to stop the bleeding, but Parry worked out the practical details that made a larger limb, such as a fire removal, possible. The only drawback to this was that at least 55 ligatures were needed in an upper leg amputation, which in order to do quickly and successfully, a surgeon would need a couple of very skilled assistants at hand, which of course was not always possible. Parry died in 1590 at the age of 80. Utilising the power of the printing press, his ideas travelled widely and enabled him to see his work influence new generations of medical practitioners. We now move to another key figure from this period, William Harvey. William Harvey's work into the circulation of the blood is seen as perhaps the most groundbreaking piece of new evidence, especially when you consider that since ancient times, blood has been viewed as a life-giving fluid. It is without doubt the most significant of the four humours, and when out of balance, it was believed to cause a whole plethora of illnesses. So William Harvey, he was Englishman, um, born in Kent in 1578. And after completing a degree at Cambridge, um, he left England to study medicine at Padua University in Italy. Padua was the leading centre for medical research as its policy was very much to encourage hands-on experimentation, dissection and observation, which proved hugely formative. As a student, Harvey was taught the ancient theory of the production and motion of the blood, which suggested that the veins carried the blood originated in the liver and the arteries stemmed from the heart. Blood, therefore, was literally concocted, you know, almost cooked in the liver. It then migrated outwards on a kind of tidal motion through the veins into the organs where it carried nourishment and was consumed. 
So although this theory had actually held authority for almost 1500 years, no one actually understood how or why. So this prompted um, Harvey to start his own investigation, which um, he initially began by experimenting on the circularity system of animals. His experiments showed that so much blood left the heart in a minute that it could not conceivably be absorbed by the body and continually replaced by the blood made in the liver. He noted that the amount of blood forced out of the heart in 60 minutes far exceeded its volume in the whole animal. This evidence established that the blood must constantly move in a circuit, otherwise the arteries um, and the body would literally explode under pressure. Now, um, Harvey's findings were based upon part theory, yeah, part observation, and part experimental, as he did not use uh, the newly developed microscope, um, so it was impossible for him to see the complete pathways of the circular movement, the, you know, the, the minute capillaries between the arteries and the veins. But like no one before, he showed a connection must actually exist. Harvey, you know, although he gave regular public lectures about his observations, it was not until 1628 that he published his work. And um, this book title translates as On the Motions of the Heart. And as you might imagine, it received a very, very mixed reception, especially amongst those, you know, still quite ardent Galenists, um, as it was without doubt the book that challenged the ancient doctor's theory more than any other did. Of course, history is not a series of successes that lead to an ultimate medical utopia. For as many breakthroughs, there are also mistakes and calculated risks. One treatment the early modern period is famous for is in its use of mercury to cure venereal diseases, particularly syphilis. A well-known saying from the time was, a night with Venus, a lifetime with mercury. This is one of those things where everyone thinks, oh, this is just where our ancestors were really stupid. You know, everybody knows that mercury is poisonous. Why on earth would you use mercury as a treatment for any kind of disease? That's Dr. Anton Howes, historian of invention and author of Arts and Minds. Now, syphilis, I should explain the context there. Syphilis is the kind of the AIDS of the 16th and 17th centuries. It is this extremely horrible, horrible sexually transmitted disease. You know, at the time it's been connected, connected with this idea that you know, maybe people are just being sinful and this is their punishment. Um, is this something that came from the New World perhaps, you know, with, the, with, with Columbus? Um, is this something that came from various other countries? You know, it, depending on what country you're in, the syphilis or the pox is, seems to come from abroad, right? In Britain it's often referred to as the French pox, um, I believe in France it was either the Spanish or the English pox, right? It's something that seems to be this kind of punishment um, as they see it. And so mercury comes into this interestingly because from the very beginning people do know that mercury is, can be extremely poisonous, but it really works along the same lines as we would use chemotherapy today. The idea is that the mercury will hopefully kill off the disease um, before it kills off the patient. But it's an interesting one, I think, because in a sense it actually does work. I mean, we don't know this for sure, because obviously we haven't tested this in the 20th, 21st centuries properly, you know, in a way that you would test modern medicines. But the, the evidence that we have seems to suggest that actually, yes, if you did rub a bit of mercury on some of these sores, it would have that effect. Um, that there are, you know, occasionally mercury poisoning can be associated with 
the sorts of things that you would get from mass bacterial death um, within the body, which can often even mean re mass release of toxins, and which itself can be dangerous. You know, even though you've killed the disease, its 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 corpse, in a sense, is also then going to kill you. Um, and so there is this. You know, we we do have some evidence that using mercury in that way may actually have had that kind of chemotherapeutic effect. Let's move on to the social history of the period. When Henry VIII ordered the dissolution of the monasteries, he didn't just change the religion of England and enrich his own coffers, he fundamentally shifted the role of public health care as well. In the mid-16th century, after the dissolution of the monasteries and the nunneries, which until then had sort of been centres of health care in England, you get a, a sort of public health crisis where all of a sudden they realise they don't have these places to send sick people. That's Dr. Laura Thorpe, historian of medicine, gender and restoration London. So what they do instead is they set up a system where local parishes become responsible for providing health care for the people that live in those parishes. And the way they decide to do this is people in the parish who um, need relief from the parish, they need money from the parish because they are poor or for whatever reason, they receive money from the parish to care for other people and to nurse other people. Um, and a lot of these people were women. So women were essential to early modern medicine, both formally and informally. People during this time still held to much of the medical knowledge conceived during the classical period, but they had their own unique approaches and challenges as well. There were lots of ways of trying to prevent yourself from, from falling sick. People believed that witchcraft could cause illness and disease. That's Dr. Wanda Wapurska, early modern historian and author of Witchcraft in Early Modern Poland. But if people wanted to prevent themselves from catching a disease, then they would, they would want to be where the air was good. They would burn things that would have a nice smell, for example. Um, they also believed that motion was good, but again, not, in, not in, in excess. So for men, it was thought that leaping was good and hunting. But for women, it was thought that they should stick to gardening, really. That was you know, the, exertion, the right amount of exertion for them. Also getting the right amount of sleep. Um, and really a focus on things that were taken into the body and things that were excreted out of the body. Um, so not really that different from today, if we think about it. And also thinking about a seasonal diet, eating the fruits and the vegetables that were in season at the time. And there's some really interesting notes on people saying that, you know, you shouldn't eat too much meat in the summer. You should just have light meats. Um, and the same with wine. You know, it was fine to drink a bit more wine in the winter. But in the summer, you wanted to have lighter wines or, or not quite as much. And really... They were looking at things like purging, which, you know, probably most people have come across thinking about leeches or bloodletting or vomiting or sweat. So really things that were going inside the body and things that were going out of the body. But to counteract some of this, they would use herbs. And so that's why you see when you go to country houses or you go to castles, you'll see herb gardens very often, a physic garden, because they believe that you could heal yourselves from herbs. And again, you know, we, we see those sorts of beliefs today. Now, if you wanted to protect yourself from witchcraft, for example, um, you might want to think about, you know, your godly life, about how religious you were so that God would protect you from any evil witchcraft. But also you'd be thinking about protective prayers. And, you know, early on, people would would say prayers over their cattle or over their crops to protect them. But later that became seen as as perhaps even indulging in witchcraft. So you had to be very careful what you were saying in front of your cows. In the medical treatises that I've read, and most of the medical treatises I've read do focus on plague, people, people display a lot of anxiety about a number of illnesses. 
Um, and it's interesting considering the amount of chronic illness that must have been present in the population and the number of sort of everyday ailments um, and injuries that would preoccupy people, that people have a lot of concern about contagious or pestilential diseases as they called them. People are very concerned about plague and people are really concerned about smallpox. Um, and I think part of that is because of the conflation of these, of these diseases with um, sort of uh, divine retribution, this idea that God is punishing people with these specific um, epidemic diseases. Um, but also I think just because um, it wasn't something people could predict, it was something that um, sort of came out of nowhere and could wipe out your entire family. And I think particularly in the case of plague and smallpox, people are so concerned about it because you would be quarantined. And so there's this sort of economic and social ramification that comes with getting the disease that you wouldn't experience for other diseases. When it comes to the care of the sick, the hierarchical structures of the medieval period proved resilient, but there were changes. The Royal College of Physicians was established in 1518, then the Fellowship of Surgeons merged with the Barber's Company in 1540. Additionally, in 1617, the Worshipful Society of Apothecaries was formed, all of which combined to mark a growing professionalisation of medical care, from physicians to barber surgeons to apothecaries. Now, despite the varying differences between the three occupations in terms of training, social status and practice and so on, they all shared the similar views in regards to the concepts of, um, of health and illness uh, that was very much follow the classical or Galenic theory of medicine based upon like the overall fluid balance. And equally, all three were opposed to unlicensed practitioners. And of these, there were many. Indeed, there were. On the British History Online database, there are records relating to hundreds of unlicensed medical practitioners in London between 1550 and 1640. They were often referred to as quack doctors and operated outside the law, just to pull out a few examples. In 1589, Anne Baker was accused of illegally practising medicine on many patients by offering fumigations and purgatives. Between 1606 and 1623, one Thomas Tennant was regularly brought before authorities for bad conduct. One woman accused him of giving her husband a pea-sized pill for a mild heat, which had caused him to vomit excessively for three days before dying. In the 1630s, we find one Mary Austin being summoned after it was alleged the fluxing pills she'd prescribed to two of her customers had given them ulcers. Of course, most sick people continued to be cared for at home within their community and women in particular played a very big role um, in this way of actually treating their families and obviously their neighbours and so forth. And this included sort of wealthy women as well as poor women. Let's go into the role of women a little bit more. Women were, of course, the repositories, the keepers of the recipes and the remedies. And, and rather like every sort of, you know, every household has their own favourite recipe for shepherd's pie or whatever. You know, women had their and their households had their own favourite recipes for healing and the herbs that they used and the knowledge that they had about the herbs, you know, going out early in the morning to get herbs um, when the dew was still fresh on them. So that would be passed down through generations. But women, it was very much healing was very much part of a woman's sort of household duty really and if we look at um there's a book that was published in 1698 
The Good Housewife Made a Doctor by Thomas Tryon. Um, and this is a great collection of household remedies. So if you had a bladder problem in the 17th century, then he's recommending wine, garlic, crab's eyes, powder, uh, sorry, and powder of a stag's pizzle. And I'll leave, I'll leave people to understand what that is. Um, but this was very much seen as part of a woman's role. Women were, of course, nurses. Um, they were female quack doctors. They also interacted with apothecaries um, as we go later into the period. Um, but of course, we can't forget their important role as midwives. And when we're thinking about poorer communities, then they wouldn't be able to afford to um, go to an apothecary or, or get someone professional to help them. So very often it was someone who was well known in the community who would have you know who would have a skill or a talent for healing that somebody would go to the word nurse during the early modern period had ambiguous meanings it could just as easily refer to someone tasked with looking after the food requirements of a family and nursing children as it would somebody offering proper medical assistance during times of epidemics such as plague and smallpox this medical component came increasingly to the fore Women played two extremely important roles during times of plague in the 16th and 17th centuries. The first was as searchers of the dead. So these women were essentially early modern coroners because they had this medical expertise from having practiced medicine within their household and with their families. They were trusted essentially to search out the causes of death for people who had recently died. So within a London parish, someone would pass away and the parish would send a searcher of the dead to the house and the searcher would look across the body to determine the cause of death. And one of the main reasons that this was a system that was practiced is because the searcher would specifically look for signs of plague. So that would be sort of buboes on the lymph nodes of the body. So that would be neck, underarm and groin area. They would look for sort of the carbuncles and blisters and sort of the obvious telltale signs. And the reason that was so important is because if plague was detected, that house had to be put into quarantine. So they were completely cut off, um, locked in their houses for 40 days with a watcher or basically a person making sure nobody left at the door. So searchers essentially are the people that are detecting plague, looking out to see if plague is happening within sort of local areas. So in terms of that, they play an essential role. Women also serve as nurses during plague epidemics. So in my research, I've looked a lot at the nurses of St. Margaret's Westminster, which is a parish in London, right next to Whitehall, basically right next to Westminster Abbey. And over the course of the 1665 to 1666 epidemic of plague, 324 women were named as nurses. So this is a, a large quantity of women and they're being called on to go into houses where there's nobody to take care of the people. Now, these women were usually women who were receiving relief from the parish. So these were typically poorer women who would be called into a house to give medical care. And I found evidence that to me really suggests that these women were actually providing medical care for people in quarantine houses. So there's a distinction, for example, between women who were paid for washing for someone or watching someone versus people, women who were being paid for nursing. There's also a nurse I've tracked. Her name was Jane Alloway. She was paid five times for nursing during the 1665 epidemic, but she was also paid twice for being a midwife. So it's obvious she had established medical expertise that was used in her parish. 
And you also see in some parishes a difference in the rates that were paid for nurses based on their sort of medical expertise. So in the parish of St. Bride's, Fleet Street, you get a woman who was paid 18 pence a week for keeping her husband, but the going rate for a nurse during the epidemic was four to seven shillings a week, depending on sort of the elements of attendance and depending on the woman herself, how, how good was she? So women were vital parts of the epidemic. They were essential parts of sort of the public health scheme designed to contain and look after plague victims. And they're unique in that way. They play a role that men do not play in that epidemic. And I think that's a really important thing to understand. We often associate the late 19th and early 20th centuries with the first women to qualify as physicians within modern regulated medical bodies. In actual fact, it was during the tail end of the early modern period that we find the first accredited female physician, Dorothea Erxleben. She received her doctorate in medicine from the University of Halle in 1754. Meanwhile, it was during this period that men made increasing inroads into historically female medical spaces, specifically the birthing room. So, alongside Jane Sharp's seminal 1671 text, The Midwife's Book, the first to be written by an Englishwoman, we also find the creation of the obstetric forceps. So we don't know exactly when the forceps emerge because they were kept a secret for a very, very long time. So there's a bunch of Huguenot, so this is uh, French Protestant refugees um, from the late 16th century, arrived in, in England, um, the Chamberlain family. Um, and so you've got, rather confusingly, two brothers, both called Peter, Peter the Elder and Peter the Younger Chamberlain. And then Peter's, Peter the Youngest son, who becomes Dr. Peter Chamberlain, um, who all seem to have had this family secret of using forceps um, to deliver babies. Um, and one of the interesting things about them, um, about this invention in particular, is that, well, it seems to have worked um, pretty well. Um, but they often were getting in trouble with physicians, um, with the barber surgeons company of which the, the two initial brothers had been members, um, and also with midwives in London who um, were often trying to organise themselves into a guild or into a corporation. Um, initially, the, the, two, the two brothers supported them in that. Then later on, the son, Dr. Peter Chamberlain, decides that he would like to be in charge of this new corporation should it set up. But the, the, other, the actual midwives thought that this wouldn't be a terribly good idea. Um, but throughout the, this entire history, they're, always, you know, they're constantly at odds with the rest of the medical profession. Um, and we don't really know how successful the forceps were, other than the fact that they seem to have had a pretty successful practice, that people kept on coming back to them. Um, and the actual forceps themselves, although they kept it so secret for so long, were finally discovered under some floorboards in an attic in 1813. Um, and then finally, in, you know, in, 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 in the early 19th century, we were able to work out just how effective they were. And they seem to be you know, pretty good, um, even by the standards of the 18th century. So for maybe about 100 years or so, perhaps longer, um, they were practicing um, with forceps that they kept secret, but which were able to facilitate births and make them much faster, actually, is one of the main things, as well as easier. 
Of course, the world doesn't begin and end with Europe. There were many innovations all over the globe during this time, and the consequences of colonialism and the increased contact between different cultures and continents on medicine and disease will be explored in detail in the next episode. Before then, let's travel to West Africa to hear about the medical beliefs and practices that were going on at the time there. The Kingdom of Dahomey existed from 1600 to 1900 and was geographically in the same area as modern-day Benin. During the early modern period, it was an important coastal power whose cultural traditions have left a rich mark on history. Not only do we have material culture, which gives us a bit of an insight um, into what people thought about belief and spirituality and medicine as well, but also through oral traditions and actually through practices and religious traditions which still take part today, we have some understanding. That's Luke Papera, broadcaster, writer and expert in the ancient and medieval history of Africa. When it comes to Dahomean spirituality and in, in general African spirituality, um, the, 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 the mindset and the cosmology surrounding human beings, our place in the world and our connection to the spiritual world as well is important. Um, the Dahomeans and again many Africans believe in this grand unity between the spiritual and the material world and in fact the material world is seeing as being a kind of lesser um, aspect or a lesser um, lesser even to the spiritual world and in within the spiritual world there are not only the ancestors who have come before us but um, there are also lesser gods and then there are um, and then there are slightly more powerful gods who act as intercessors uh, between human beings and then the grand creator god um, who in the Dahomean and still in the Beninese uh, Vodun or voodoo uh, tradition is called Maulisa. Uh, Mau and there's a combination of two gods, Mawu being the female counterpart and Lisa being actually the male counterpart, um, who is the grand creator god. So therefore, when it comes to health and well-being, it is not only what's happening to your body that is important to illnesses in terms of physical illness, but it's connected as well to the spiritual world. Once again, we find the supernatural fused with the natural. So in order for medicine to be effective, First, you actually have to, or the belief is that first you actually have to appease the god or deity or divinity, um, which, or the supernatural force which is causing that, that physical symptom. And only when you've done all those physical symptoms and only when you've done the required sacrifice um, or the required ritual will the medicines that you prescribe and the herbs that you take and the remedies that, um, you know, that, are, that is prescribed to one, only then will those work and those be effective in curing the actual disease itself. Um, so, and, and this, and what is interesting, this, this actually, you know, this belief continues on as it were until this day in, in, modern, in, in modern day Benin, um, there is still this belief that actually no matter how, you know, the sort of West medicines, um, which are you know, conventional medicines that we would take, take normally and take for granted here, there's a belief that uh, they are only effective once the spiritual side has been, um, you know, has been dealt with as well. Care of the sick fell to a number of people. Usually the one who would be in charge would be the priest, the fetish priest. So in the Dahomean religion, the religion of Vodun or Voodoo, there are different cults related to certain deities. And those deities are, usually have certain attributes or they're usually in charge of certain aspects. 
and each deity has worshippers, which is also, as it were, a stratified system. So you have worshippers, some who are brought in almost as apprentices, and then obviously you have the priests themselves who are at the top of this hierarchy, who have the closest relationship, at least as far as human beings are concerned, with the certain deity and divinity. And they are the ones who will engage in the processes of helping one to relieve their physical symptoms by communing with the supernatural world. Now, this can take the form of possessions or it can be the sacrifice of um, a certain animal. And it's these fetish priests who administer the actual cures. Before the priest or medicine man actually comes, there is the diviner who is supposed to diagnose um, the illness and the cause, the supernatural cause of the, of the illness. And once he's done that, the fetish priest is basically prescribes not only the herbal remedy, but also the supernatural um, or the religious and spiritual remedies required in order to solve certain ailments or certain illnesses. And certain illnesses can only be cured by appeasing to certain gods. There is, for example, um, the cult of Sakpata, and he's known as, a, as the god who inflicts smallpox um, as a punishment on those who offend him. Um, so if you were afflicted with smallpox, you would go to the high priest of the cult of Sakpata, and he would be the one who would cure you. Many established traditions were disrupted by the arrival of French colonizers in the 19th century. In the next episode, we'll explore the ways in which medicine and medical knowledge traveled the world through colonialism, warfare, intellectual networks, and slavery. With thanks to today's guests, Julie Mathias, Dr. Laura Thorpe, Dr. Vanda Vaporska, Luke Pepperer, and Dr. Anton Howes. This series was written, narrated, and produced by myself, Rebecca Adil. It was edited and produced by Matt Pearson and was brought to you by Sick to Death. For Medicine Through Time GCSE students, revision notes and sources are available via our website, www.sicktodeath.org. Time.